Hello and welcome to Financial Education Information. My name's Warren Shu, and today we're talking about the dead boring subject of funeral plans. This episode has been sponsored by Idealo, the price comparison website. Okay, sorry. Let me apologize for the jokes up front. It isn't a funny joke. Um, however, it's something that I've been saying for as long as I can remember. And it's funny to me. And I think sometimes in life, that's all that counts. You have to be able to laugh at yourself. And if you were anything like me, you certainly would laugh at yourself. Definitely. So funeral plans, the overall cost of dying, okay, not the most exciting subject in the world, but it's something that's going to happen to all of us, I'm afraid, is it is all time high. It just keeps increasing. Um, Sun Life have uh, issued some figures. It says it's £9,493 for a basic funeral, professional fees and sending off fees. Now, that's a basic funeral. Um, and it keeps increasing. It's increased over the last 15 years at an average rate of about 6% a year. So given some kind of percentage, that's probably about double the inflation rate. So um, it's, it's, it's fair going. And because the rates of funeral plans and funerals keep going up and up and up, more and more people are looking at this thing called a funeral plan to pay their funeral costs. Now, what a funeral plan is, is it's something you either pay monthly or you pay as a one-off. And then when you die, that then guarantees you, or guarantees your estate, because you're not around, are you? Guarantees your estate a funeral from in a certain category. So you basically say, they, they, they maybe, maybe say um, funerals A, B, C, and D. A might have all the bells and whistles, and um, D might just actually have a send-off. And A might be um, £10,000, £6,000, £5,000, and £2,000, for example. And the premiums that you pay to get A, B, C, or D are going to reflect the service that you want. So although you don't guarantee a particular funeral, you do guarantee a funeral standard, if that makes sense. There'll be certain criteria within there that you can do. And you can sometimes as well choose the funeral director that you want to go with. And some funeral directors will also have plans. What is essentially important is you know that your money is being held in a trust, stroke nominee, stroke client account. I say stroke because they're all very similar things, different legalities, but they're all essentially the money is outside of the funeral plan company in case they go bust and also outside of the funeral director's company in case they go bust. Um, so people have been putting money into these funeral plans because of the rate, uh, rates in which funerals are increasing to protect or hedge them um, or their estate against the cost. One of the downsides of these things is that they're not regulated. Um, so, but until now or until soon, should I say. So um, that's set to change. New legislation is on its way to bring funeral plan providers under the regulation of the Financial Conduct Authority, which would be great which would, I think will be fantastic because I actually quite like them, um, particularly people who have a modest size estate. Um, they're quite handy because you know you've got to guarantee certainty that these things are going to get paid and you don't have any headaches, hassles or worries from your um, loved ones. <clears throat> um, the downside is um, obviously a funeral paid out of your estate reduces your estate for inheritance tax, so there's effectively a 40% discount. So if you have an inheritance tax liability, they can be attractive it can be attractive not to have a funeral plan. Um, and 
for people who can afford it, it's quite nice to make the uh, have the flexibility and the decision making, so you don't need to worry about them. So it's they're not for everyone. I'm not saying they're definitely for everyone. Depends which camp you fall in. If you have a tax liability and you have the means to have the funeral that you want, then perhaps not. If you want to pre-fund all your expenses before you pass away, not leave any costs for people to cover, and you don't have that much money, then perhaps they are a good idea. But what is essentially important is you choose a reputable uh, firm. Um, currently, funeral plan providers can seek registration under the Funeral Planning Authority, the FPA. Um, but that's a self-regulatory body and membership is not mandatory. So um, it's better than them not being a member, I think but it's not essential that they're a member. But soon, um, the government has now decided that they bring funeral plan providers in the remit of the FCA, um, and that then, thankfully, then will extend to the Financial Ombudsman's Authority, which is the um, ombudsman is who you go to if you have a complaint against a regulated firm. So you've got a lot more protection there, um, and I would imagine then they come under the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, which means if they go bust, there's a compensation levy, just like you're probably familiar with the 85,000. If a bank goes bust and you lose your deposit, you have that protection there. You have it with investments, you have it with pensions and insurances. Um, so I would therefore imagine once the funeral plan um, companies are regulated by the FCA and you have the financial ombudsman service, you would then have the financial services compensation scheme as well, which would be great, but it's not yet. It's not yet. <clears throat> question I've got also is, if you take a plan out now, uh, once regulation comes in, will it come under the regulation? My assumption is that it will do. Um, but um, yeah, maybe I'll look into that and find out what we think. So um, Parliament will be given uh, a vote on the legislation soon. Um, we're expected for this legislation to come in force in about 18 months' time. Um, if it's approved and the FCA are therefore expect to take regulation over around about September 22. So the way things are going, we'd, I'm recording this at the end of 21, so we've only got just roughly 18 months or so um, before that's going to happen, which is great news. I'm really, really pleased. Um, if we think funerals are expensive now, obviously with this coming into place, with the companies providing these policies, they've got no regulatory costs really at the moment. Now, regulatory costs are quite expensive, so the, the cost of these funeral plans, I believe, will go up. Uh, once regulation comes in, because they'll have all the costs of the FCA and the ombudsman fees and everything else to pay, um, possibly higher PI costs as well. So um, it's likely that the cost of these will go up um, to meet those expenses. So it will be interesting to see whether plans taken out will be covered under the regulation. My assumption is, and if they do, it might be a good idea to get in there early. There's no advice here, obviously, remember, so uh, just bear that in mind. But yeah, that's funeral plans, and they're an interesting, interesting product. I don't do them actually in my own firm, um, but we uh, do come across them every now and again. So I want to give you five facts about funerals uh, this week. So uh, some of them are interesting, some are fun actually. The average price of a basic funeral personal fees to send off in 2004, Sun Life started recording this information, was £1,920. So in 2004, a basic funeral is 1,900. That's like over 9,000 pounds now. So uh, there you go. That's the cost of funeral inflation. The average cost of funeral itself has risen by 62% in the last decade. And the average wage increase over the same amount of time has only been 20%. So giving you these facts, it kind of makes you think, actually, you know what? If funeral plans are going at such a rate and then my wages aren't keeping place, then perhaps it is. Um, the only thing that might change that is if someone like Amazon comes into the market and sort of swoops up and they're doing funerals at, say, £500. 
Um, you never know. It, it, it could be done. Definitely could be done. Cremations are used for around 78% of all deaths in the UK, um, which was very interesting to me. So I think it's the first time um, that they've become more popular. So that's yeah, interesting. And it's less expensive to have a cremation than it is a burial. Now, I wasn't aware of a direct cremation till I did this uh, survey. So the average cost of a direct cremation, and a direct cremation is one where there is no funeral service, actually fell by 5% to £1,600. So <clears throat> I don't, I, I, I'm trying to understand the actual cost. Maybe I should look into this a bit more. But a direct cremation is just where you get cremated and there's no service. I guess your body's just taken there by the under, uh, undertakers and, and cremated and then you get the ashes afterwards. Um, and that's £1,600, so a lot, lot less. And this is the one that really interested me and maybe chuckle, if I'm honest, because I didn't realise that they were actually around. And that's it. The, for around £45 an hour, there are companies that you can actually t use to hire out professional mourners. Now, whenever I think I've got a boring job, which I don't think is boring at all, but people might think finance is boring, I then think of a professional mourner. <laughs> That would be an interesting one to explain at a party, wouldn't it? Uh, other news this week and the headlines moving off of their boring uh, funeral plans. Uh, Department Working Pensions, DWP, has announced the proposed state pension rate rises for 2021 and 22. Sorry, 2021, 22. It's hard to say all those 20s. Um, which will come into effect on the 12th of April next year, 21. Uh, state pension will increase by 2.5%. That will take the new state pension up to £179.60 per week, which works out to be about £9,339 a year. So if you look at that, just shy of 10000 a year, you're still a non-taxpayer. That's why we harp on about putting money away for retirement, because that's not enough for you to retire on um, any good standard of retirement anyway. The UK Wealth Tax Commission has published a report on the effectiveness of a one-off wealth tax to cover the estimated 280 billion costs in the pandemic. Uh, it's in favour of having one, which is interesting. I was going to say worrying. It is worrying, I'll be honest, but I guess this money's got to be paid back. Uh, however, both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak have dismissed the idea while their minds are yet to be changed. Um, the report does go on to say how costly the um, pandemic has been and how we're going to pay it back so <clears throat> there's been lots to talk about tax rises this and the other this um wealth tax was a one-off payment just to clear the debt um i i, I it's, it's not going to be very um uh, go down very well with the voters i don't think so i don't think any politician is going to be jumping up and down for that however we do we are likely to see tax rises i just don't think we're going to see tax rises in the short term um, particularly while the economy is unstable um, and we're going through Brexit as well at the moment. Uh, questions that I had in from listeners and readers and such like this week. Uh, I own a house with my brother. So this individual was married um, and they owned a house with their brother, with her brother. Um, what will happen when I die? I'd like it to ask my children. Okay, so property can be owned in one of two ways. It can either be owned as joint tenants which you basically each own 100% of the property. So joint tenancy. Most houses are bought joint tenancy. So if one person dies, it goes to survivor. Or tenants in common, which you would each own a percentage of the property. So let's say, for example, you each own 50-50. So in this example, they owned it joint tenancy. So that means if one of them to die, it would fall to the survivor. So rather than going to the lady's children that she wanted, it's actually going to go to her brother and her brother's family. 
Okay. Likewise, though, if her brother died, the whole house would go to her and then eventually to her family. Okay. Now, they don't want that. They want it to go to their respective families when they pass away. So they would need to sever the tenancy. So change the title of the property and change it to tenants in common. And that simply means that when she dies, her 50% will fall equally, in this example, to her two children. And he would still retain his share. And likewise, when he, her brother dies, his 50% will fall to his family and she will still own the property with his family. Now, it's a very simple process. A letter to the land registry, there's a land severance of tenancy form SEV, I think it is, needs to be changed. Um, and yeah, it's worth doing. Yeah, worth doing. Uh, second question in, I'm a post-grad student studying a master's and I have saved £6,000. What should I do with it? Well, first of all, congratulations to you for coming up with so much money. That's absolutely an amazing feat. Well done. Don't take that for light-hearted. Um, the advice stays the same for everyone. Um, you know, keep about three to six months of your expenditure on deposit because that's going to take you through a difficult time if something would happen. Um, you know, you might, all sorts of things. I don't want to give you ideas of what could happen, but all sorts of things. Just a bit of a safety net. Three to six months of your expenditure on deposit plus any planned capital expenditure over the next three to five years. So if you're looking to buy a car or in this example, you were looking to move into a rental property, keep some rental deposit back, that kind of thing. Okay, now, so you've got that covered. So you've got your expenditure for your day-to-day -day living expenses, and then you've got your um, house deposit. You're looking to go into a rental. Um, any excess money really should be put away for the future. Now, you mentioned that you wanted to buy a house. So I'd recommend a Lisa, a lifetime individual savings account. Fantastic vehicles. You can put up to £4,000 in um, and get a 25% bonus. So in that case, £1,000. And you can use that for the purchase of your first home. So it'd be a great, great thing for you to do. Um, for that money. Now, depending on when you're going to plan on buying the house, depends on how you manage that money in there. So if you're going to buy that house in, say, three years' time, just keep it on deposit. There's no point taking a risk with it. If you're looking to buy that house maybe five, six, seven, or even ten years in the time, um, you can allow that money to be invested and it will beat inflation over that time, we hope. Um, so taking a bit of uh, a risk with the money. <clears throat> so, Smarter Spender uh, this week. So Smarter Spender, well, I, this section is sponsored by DLO, the price comparison site. And the reason I bring it in is because I really believe that spending money is not bad. I like you to enjoy your life. We know life's not a continuum, so have fun and spend the money. But don't overspend and don't spend money you don't have. Using credit cards, not paying them off is not a great way to go. So I teamed up with DLO because I think they've got a fantastic tool for ensure that you get the best price on your products. Um, what's great and discounted this week, uh, so PS4 games are apparently 15% cheaper on average than last week. So by going to Adilo's site, you can type in the things, you can see what's trending, what's cheaper, and that kind of thing. So it's a good, good tool to use in your day-to-day -day spending. Um, what's great at the moment, December is the cheapest month of the year to buy a baby cot. Now, it's not going to be a cheap time for me because I'm not needing a baby cot. It'd be very expensive to buy something you don't need. And that's also important. But December is the cheapest month of the year. So if you're in need of a baby cot, or if you're likely to be in need of a baby cot shortly, um, then, yeah, it might be a good time to invest in one. But don't worry. If you've got your money tied up with Christmas and everything else, you don't have much surplus in the bank, January is still quite affordable. And those costs are only about £10 more expensive in De than in December. Uh, in December, is about £50 cheaper than the average throughout the year, which is great. I think the most expensive time is June. And of course, we're doing this recording in December. So what will consumers be doing this month is they'll be buying their last minute Christmas gifts. And what a tip we've got for you this time is, look, 
if you're going to go into the, lots of online sites are selling out of goods so you can't buy the things that are out of stock but if you go into the store they are in stock so what we're saying is go on to google google maps see when the shops are quietest and then maybe try and take a trip into the shop then when it's quietest so you avoid the crowds it's safer for you probably more pleasurable as well and because it's in store you've got some happy family friends and relatives to enjoy those gifts so um thank you so much for listening to this episode slightly shorter than normal but i hope it's been worthwhile and keep your questions coming in and until next time stay safe bye, -bye.